Um, last week, uh, on my, I was walking home from work, and I, I passed by one of our neighbors uh, who lives in the neighborhood here, and he started asking me, he asked me a question about the Hope House and what that is and how it was named uh, the Hope House, what was going on there, and, and we were talking for a minute, and then he, he abruptly changed the uh, conversation. He said, hey, why did you, why, why were you all meeting outside for so long last year? Like, why are you letting the government push you around and, and tell you how you could and couldn't worship? He, he, wasn't, uh, he wasn't harsh in the way he asked the question, but it was, it was direct. I wonder how you would have answered that question. Uh, we're studying the book of Proverbs in these summer months. Proverbs is a unique book uh, in its structure and in its uh, preachability. If I just made up a word there. Uh, the first nine chapters, there's some structure and some rhythm. There's some extended speeches that a father is making to his son about wisdom and the value of wisdom and the cultivation of wisdom. But then most of the book, uh, from chapter 10 really through chapter 30 at least, uh, most of it are, are very isolated sayings. The Proverbs are, are short, little statements, punchy, provocative, that teach a, a general lesson and principle about uh, life and the nature of them through most of the book is that they're, they're, there's just not a real structure to them. Some have tried to identify a structure. I don't think it really works. If you just go in and read Proverbs 12, which is the chapter we're going to start in, you can go ahead and turn to Proverbs 12. If you, and I'm not saying you should do it right now, but if you just read all of those Proverbs, they're one after the other after the other, it's hard to find coherence. And so to assist, uh, assist us in our study of the book of Proverbs this summer, uh, we are considering the book thematically, and we're using the uh, well-known list that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians that we know as the fruit of the Spirit, recorded there in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. We're using the fruit of the Spirit as a lens by which we might go into the book of Proverbs and learn from its instruction. Uh, I've heard it said that the book of Proverbs, in the book of Proverbs, God our Father is uh, coaching us, his spirit-filled uh, followers of Christ, he's coaching us in strategies for newness of life. And what that newness of life tastes like is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the sweet flavor that the Lord is working in his people by his Holy Spirit. What does, that, what does that new way of the Spirit, that new life of the Spirit, what does it look like? How does it play out in the variety of life circumstances and environments that we find ourselves in, where that newness of life is called for? Well, I think Proverbs is a very helpful and thorough guide in us learning that kind of wisdom. So that's what we've been doing. That's what we have begun to do. And this morning we come in our study to uh, what Paul mentions in Galatians 5 is the third fruit of the Spirit. They all are, I believe, interconnected. But the third fruit that he mentions is the fruit of peace. 
And we, we heard the, the wisdom of peace commended even in that New Testament reading from James chapter 3, right? True wisdom, that wisdom that comes from above is peaceable. And we really need some peace in this world, don't we? Uh, we live in a society, we live in a world that is deeply, deeply divided. And I had a paragraph or two in here to press into that a little bit and explain that and elaborate on that, but I just struck it because I don't think I need to make that case with you. We live in a very divided world, and we, the people of God, uh, are called to, by our peacemaking spirit, we are called to shine as lights in the midst of a deeply embittered and deeply divided world. And God's word gives us the wisdom to do it. His word, as Paul writes to Timothy, his word is sufficient to equip us for every good work that he has called us to, including the good work of making peace. And so as we begin our study this morning of peace, we're going to start with Proverbs 12, 20. Uh, it is a springboard. We want to survey the whole teaching of the book of Proverbs, at least as much as we can. I'm I'm going to mention a lot of Proverbs, but I'm not going to say everything there is to say on this subject this morning. But we're going to start in Proverbs 12:20. Before I read that verse to you, though, let me pray and again ask the Lord for his help as we come to his word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your help. We thank you that your spirit dwells among us by faith according to your grace. And we pray that your spirit would be active among us now, giving us life, renewing us, reviving us, strengthening us, equipping us for those good works which you have prepared beforehand for us. And we pray that your spirit might even be pleased to awaken some to life for the very first time, that there may be some here slumbering in spiritual death and alienation from you, but that this morning even they might come to life and find peace with you through our Lord Jesus. We ask for this in his name. Amen. Uh, listen to Proverbs 12, verse 20. Proverbs 12, verse 20. I'll read it twice because it's short. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. I have two points for you this morning. They roughly correspond to the two halves of that one proverb, though again, we'll be surveying lots of teaching from Proverbs this morning. Uh, point number one, the outrageous, perverse, abominable evil of destroying peace. And then secondly, the sweet, refreshing, honorable joy of promoting peace. Point number one, the outrageous, if you're note-taking and you didn't get all those adjectives, the outrageous, perverse, abominable, evil of destroying peace. Uh, there could have been more words. You can add in your own. Nauseating, disgusting, repulsive, repugnant, atrocious, horrendous, evil, of destroying peace. I say, that's pretty strong language here, Larry. 
Uh, it is, and I'll, I'll just clue you in on how I got there. I, I began to look at this word deceit there in Proverbs 12.20, deceit. Deceit has to do with dishonesty, devious, lying. And as I began to look around in Proverbs, I was drawn to Proverbs chapter 6, which struck me as a pretty thorough and sobering exposition of this deceitful divisor of evil referred to in chapter 12, verse 20. So flip back a few pages in your Bible, if you have your Bible uh, open, to Proverbs chapter 6, and listen to the wisdom of Solomon in Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly, in a moment. He will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now, I'm not going to take the time to run through every particular body part on that list and how it is contributing to the disruption of peace, but I think the, the cumulative effect of that imagery is meant to communicate that this is an effort of the whole person who is called here the worthless person who is bent on destroying peace. It's as though discord is just oozing out of every part of this person. And it struck me that sowing discord is the opposite of planning peace, right? Sowing discord is destroying peace. It, it roots itself, we're told there, in a perverse heart that devises wicked plans, but the feet and the hands and the tongue, even the haughty, winking eye. I know winking your eye can be a playful thing, but I think this has, we might think of it more today as an eye roll. That can disrupt some peace when I'm up here and I just happen to catch a glance and someone's rolling their eye at somebody. It's like, what are they thinking about me? I can't see you up here. <laughs> Much better than when we were meeting outside. It's as though the whole person is employed in the service of sowing discord. And it's a deeply horrible, ugly, outrageous, abominable thing. And I... I, I, I get a taste of that by seeing and observing that these are things that the Lord hates, it says. Things that he abominates. That's a, I mean, a, abomination is a strong word. It's as though the Lord is saying, I hate, here's some things I hate. I don't think this is an exhaustive list, but it's an important list. Here's some things that I absolutely hate with a passion. And, and we are also tipped off about the intensity of his hatred and the outrage of it by the punishment that he will bring to it, as it mentions there in verse uh, 15. He, it will be an unrelenting calamity, sudden devastation. It says there, beyond healing. 
No hope for restoration. It will be sudden and permanent and crushing. He hates the destruction of peace with a passion because such peace-destroying attitudes and conduct are in concert with the devil himself. And this is another little something that I observed as I began to consider this worthless person, as it mentions there in verse 12, the worthless person. Literally, that is in the Hebrew, a, a man of Belial. And for those of you that have an acquaintance with the scriptures, you may be reminded that that word Belial is a word that came to refer to Satan himself. You see it in, in 2 Corinthians 6.15. What fellowship can Christ have with Belial? Sowing discord is a satanic thing. I mean, from the very start in Genesis 3, when we meet the serpent, what is he doing? He's sowing discord between the man and the woman and their good God who has given them a good command and says, he's not really for your good. He knows when you eat this fruit, you'll be like him. He's withholding the good from you. He's so in discord right there at the beginning. Then I began to think about that list of the fruit of the Spirit. And you know, again, if you have some familiarity with that list and with that context in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is contrasted with what Paul calls the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh, he says, are evident. This is Galatians 5.19. The works of the flesh are evident. Now, I want you to listen. I'm going to read these, and I've, I counted correctly. There are 15 particular characteristics described here as the works of the flesh. He does at the end say, and things like these. This is, again, not an exhaustive list of the works of the flesh. But as I read this list, I want you to listen to how many of them explicitly have to do with the destruction of peace. Some of the other ones have to do more implicitly, like sexual immorality. You understand that sexual immorality can disrupt some peace, and so can drunkenness. But I'm, I'm talking about explicitly how many of these works of the flesh have to do with tearing apart peace. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, Paul says, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By my reckoning, it's half the list. Has to do with not all the debased debauchery, not, not just a bunch of orgies and drinking and sexual immorality out there in the world, but half the list has to do with destroying peace. So that led me to conclude that this destruction of peace is a pretty serious thing. It's a pretty outrageous, perverse, abominable evil. And I think it would warrant us then to consider some of its many faces. Because Proverbs has a lot to tell us about how it is that people come to destroy peace. So let me just give you a sampling of that instruction. We're told in Proverbs that the angry man or woman destroys peace. Uh, 29, 22. So if I'm not going to give you the book, I'm just gonna, if I just say 29, 22, that means all these verses are coming from Proverbs. A man of wrath stirs up strife. 
and one given to anger causes much transgression. Or 15.18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Now, we're going to talk about the slow to anger and the hot-tempered. That's next week. That's when we get to patience. So I'm going to say even more about that right now, but we'll come back to it. Uh, the greedy man or woman destroys peace. Uh, 28.25, a greedy man, the word has to do with an unrestrained, insatiable appetite. It has reference to money, but not only money. A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. Uh, we are told, I mentioned drunkenness there, it's in Paul's list in Galatians 5, uh, the alcohol-abusing man or woman destroys peace. And I, I probably don't need to tell. I know that that has affected some of you in this room. You have seen how abuse of alcohol has led to the destruction of peace, say, within families. And we're told that it is so in Proverbs uh, 23, verses 29 and 30. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Uh, in, your, in your liberty, beloved, you, we are, I do not believe that drinking alcohol is a sin. But in your liberty to drink alcohol, be very careful that you do not move yourself toward the kind of woe that the Proverbs warns us of. Uh, a dishonest... We, I mean, we saw it in 1220, the verse that we started from. The dishonest or deceitful or lying man or woman destroys peace. Uh, Proverbs 1628, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. It may not feel that perverse. We might not even realize that we're doing it sometimes. Just a little shading of the truth, a little dramatic exaggeration for effect. We might say, you know, I'm just, just joking. And yet the Proverbs tell us like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. That's 26, 18, and 19. We might not walk into a particular situation saying, I'm going to lie. I, I'm going to speak what is false this time. But we know how to tell a story, do we not? We know how to tell a story. We know how to make ourselves look just a little bit more heroic, make that other person look just a little bit worse. Maybe not saying anything absolutely incorrect, but we're able, as we recount something, to share maybe the three worst things about another person and maybe the four best things that were about us in a particular situation. Uh, we retell stories selectively. We impute motives and then articulate them as if they are fact. And we destroy peace in doing so. And that deceit then becomes gossip. It becomes whispering, which is also another category in Proverbs that destroys peace. We saw it in 1628. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer, that is the gossip it might say in your translation, a gossip, separates close friends. Uh, 2620, 
puts it this way, for lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Wherever in a church there is quarreling, I mean, this has application more than the church, okay? But I just made application here for the church. But you can think about all your other contexts and spheres of relationship. Wherever there is quarreling, you can almost be certain that there's whispering. Just a little talking about this person. Not, not going talking to the person, but just talking about the person freely. And it tastes delicious. He's like, like delicious morsels. Kids, talking about other people, spreading a lot of bad things about other people. It's like warm chocolate chip cookies. Oh, it tastes really good. And God says it's really, really evil. It destroys peace. Secrets, whispering, gossip, it's the lighter fluid of conflict in relationships. And this, there's complexity here because we, we, we can't always keep everything to ourselves. There, there are wise reasons to share about something that is deeply troubling and may even reflect negatively upon somebody. There could be wise reasons to share about that with somebody else. So if you are here this morning, I'll specifically say this, there are other reasons, but if you are here this morning and you are in a relationship where you are being abused, if you are being verbally assaulted or abused, you should tell someone about that. Come tell somebody even today about that. That is not what Proverbs is speaking of when it talks about the whisperer. There are appropriate reasons to share something with another person that may reflect poorly on someone else. But but let's be honest about our own hearts in this matter, beloved. Do we need to say everything that we say to other people? Uh, sometimes we're wise to just keep our mouths shut. If you don't know that experience, if you don't, if you don't know the experience of having an impulse and a strong desire to share something with another person about somebody else or about a situation, Let's say maybe sharing it with your spouse. And you just think, well, it's my spouse. You know, we're one flesh. Well, that may be true, but gossip is gossip. If you don't, if you don't know this experience of having an impulse to share with somebody else and then stifling that impulse, killing that impulse, and being quiet, if you don't know that experience, I think I could be fairly confident in saying that you are a gossip. A fool, 29, 11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. We, we've come to think, I, sometimes I actually hear people talk about venting and almost like people think of it as a virtuous thing. Not according to God. A fool gives full vent to his spirit and a wise man quietly holds back. And the more talk, just the more we talk, the more we're going to sin with our tongues. The more whispering, the more gossip, the more quarreling. And that's another big category. They are all lumped together, whispering and, and quarreling and deceit. The quarreling man or woman destroys peace. 
Proverbs 22.10, drive out a scoffer and strife will go out and quarreling and abuse will cease. Uh, 20 verse 3, it is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. Uh, 26.17, whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Some of the Proverbs are funny, right? Was you just laughing at that a little bit? Like, that's kind of funny. I've been reading through some, no, I was like, teach, I said, you know, there are some funny Proverbs. He was like, show me some of the funny ones. Now, I didn't get to the, all the, I mean, you know, there's one about a dog returning to his vomit. That always gets a laugh out of the kids. But that's kind, that's kind of, you, you want to, you take a t- passing dog by the ears. That's not a good, that's not going to go well. You're going to make the dog angry and you're probably going to get bitten. That's the point. Whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own. Uh, read social media. <laughs> I'm not going to say you have to be doing that to be engaging in social media, but boy, is social media just a hotbed for this. Whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. And so what we're commended in Proverbs is just let it go. Just, just walk away. The beginning of strife, 1714, the beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. Uh, Sisters, I would be remiss if I did not exhort you that one category the Proverbs mentioned several times is the quarrelsome wife. Beware, we're told many times, uh, 1913, 219, 2119, I think there are others that I did not write down, about the dangers of a quarrelsome wife. And husbands, lest you take those verses to bludgeon your wife into agreeing with you about everything, The very nature of the word husband has to do with husbandry, like cultivation. So if you legitimately see that your wife is perhaps quarrelsome, what you're called to is not shove a Bible verse at her about not being quarrelsome. It's to cultivate. It's to tenderly, affectionately, carefully nourish her towards that quiet and gentle spirit, which God says is very precious in his sight. But we need to be aware. Quarreling destroys peace. Whispering destroys peace. Deceit destroys peace. Greed and arrogance destroys peace. Can can you locate yourself here in anything that I've been talking about? Do you see yourself here? Are, Are you the sort of person that makes conflicts worse? Do you just have a knack for being able to enter into a conflict and make that conflict longer? and worse and more protracted? Or, or if you were dropped into a situation that is tense, does it get better? Are you, are you a quarrelsome person? There's something to talk about. I like to give you every once in a while something to talk about over lunch. Just ask someone, maybe even after the service, that knows you well. Do you find me to be a quarrelsome person? Strife is very serious. Have you gotten that impression yet? Strife is very serious. And and strife doesn't just happen. It happens because people happen. And because people are proud. And that's what Proverbs tells us. By uh, 13.10, by insolence. That's a fancy word for pride. By insolence comes nothing but strife. 21, 24 mentions the scoffer. 
He's mentioned many times in the book of Proverbs. The scoffer. What is the scoffer? Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts in arrogant pride. Uh, Self-important people, self-aggrandizing people, are peace-destroying people. And what we see there, just even thinking about that orientation of pride, that proud heart, even as we were told about it back in chapter 6, what that shows is that ultimately the problem of peace destroying isn't first a horizontal issue. It's not first a relationship between people, but it first has to do with our relationship with God. The devious person, Proverbs 14.2, despises the Lord. And that's why he's going to punish peace destroyers with the kind of sudden, horrifying vengeance that we considered earlier there from Proverbs 6.15, with that sudden calamity beyond healing. Uh, 16.5 says, everyone who is arrogant in heart, here's that word that is just so piercing every time I read it in God's word. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. In a, in a disgusting way, in a sickening way, in an outrageous way, in a perverse and abominable way, um, I have seen a lot of ugliness exposed in my heart this past week. This has not been a pleasant week, studying God's word. Uh, I have, as I've considered all these Proverbs, and there's more that I've not given you, I have had a fresh apprehension of that painful truth that the Apostle Paul articulated uh, when he articulated the condition uh, in Titus chapter 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. And you know, that's, that's a verse that just has struck me over the years as kind of strong. Like, I, you know, I understand I'm a, I have rebellion against God, I'm a sinner, we, but hey, I don't hate others. It doesn't feel too strong to me this week. I, I have seen painfully this week that I am an unwise sinner. What's in my heart, who I am by nature, is a hater of other people. I am jealous, I am selfish, I'm irritable, I'm quarrelsome, I have a tendency to roll my eyes, I'm impatient, I'm judgmental, I'm hypocritical, I'm arrogant. I don't feel like I should be standing here right now if that wasn't obvious. I am no good and I am not wise. I, I, having spent the week reflecting on the wise, sweet fruit of peace, I've been overcome, I've been overwhelmed by my badness. Nearly half of my life following Jesus. I told you that last week, right? I think it was last week. 8,197 days before Christ, and I'm coming up to 8,197 days following Christ. How can I still be so far from wisdom? 
I have the Holy Spirit residing in me, and I am endeavoring to confess my sin and to repent of my sin, but even with the Spirit of God in me, I'm freshly aware of how woefully, ridiculously short I'm falling. And I wonder if you can feel that as well and experience that as well in thinking about all these Proverbs. If you, O oh Lord, should keep a record of my peace-destroying ways, if I could adapt Psalm 130, verse 3, O oh Lord, who could stand? It has been difficult this week. And so maybe for just a few minutes together, we might look to one who perfectly, unceasingly, unfailingly plans peace and thus knows joy. Could we look at him for a little while together? Point number two. The sweet, refreshing, honorable joy of promoting peace or planning peace, counseling peace would be another way that that word is used in Proverbs 12, 20. And that joy of planning peace is not first our joy, but it is the joy of our creator and our Lord and our redeemer. Before you hear Proverbs 12, 20 as a call to you, which it is, those who plan peace have joy, that is a call to us to be those people who know the joy of planning peace before you hear it as a call to yourselves, hear it, see it, experience it as a picture of the way that our God relates to us. This is the wisdom, according to James 3.17, that came down, that comes from above, right? It came down. The wisdom came from above is the wisdom that is found in Jesus. Jesus is, according to Colossians 2, verse 3, the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. Those who plan peace have joy is a picture of your Jesus. Uh, not long ago, I was texting back and forth with a friend and I thought I said something that perhaps insulted him. I wonder if that's happened to you before. And you, you're waiting, right? I, I was texting back. It was Brian. I can, it was Brian. Brian, remember Brian came and preached? He's dope. Okay, somebody wanted to hear me say dope in a sermon, so there, I just did it. Um, I was texting back and forth with him about something. A, few, a while, a few weeks ago, and I thought I said something that maybe insulted or offended him. I wasn't sure, I didn't think so, but I could have sort of had this thought that maybe I did. And I really, I, I've come to really appreciate him, I respect him, I've learned, I, I value this friendship that is kind of a new one to me, and, and so I was, I was starting to get a little bit edgy that I had maybe said something that uh, maybe insulted him or would have caused him to think poorly of me. And you know how you're texting, it was going back and forth there pretty quickly, and then it just went silent for like 45 minutes. I was really starting to get a little bit like, you know. And then he texted back, and it was like no problem at all. Like I wasn't offended at all, totally, it was fine. So what a relief, you know. Have you experienced something like that? If, if, if we could experience that kind of relief, that a relationship, if I could experience that kind of relief, that a relationship, which hadn't actually been fractured, Right. It, but if I could experience that kind of relief that, that a relationship with someone that I had valued had been 
restored, again, even though it wasn't actually really fractured, how much more should we marvel at the fact that our relationship with our God has been restored? How staggering it is to know that when we had departed from the way of peace, when there was no fear of God before our eyes, when he had every right to bring upon us a calamity that would come suddenly in a moment where we would be broken beyond healing, that he, the God of peace, had already, before I'd ever committed one sin against him, that he had planned peace, that he had done so even before the ages began. That was a little nuance in that song, Grace Unmeasured, that I had not been thinking about when we picked that song a couple of weeks ago. He, he, before the ages, his grace called me out. It knew me from eternity and called me out before birth he had planned peace for me. And you, if you have come to Jesus in faith, he, God, he's the God of peace. And that peace is expressed first in the fellowship of the Trinity. This is another reason why sowing discord is so evil because he himself from all eternity is a loving unity of three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so sowing discord proclaims a lie about him. And yet he as the God of peace is a God who is filled with love for his enemies. And he wills that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he brings his enemies back to himself. He's the God who makes peace. So when, when that serpent sowed discord in the Garden of Eden... God promised immediately. Do you remember this in Genesis 3? After the ruin and the devastation of the fall and after man has hidden from God, when, when God goes after them and he seeks them out and he speaks to the serpent, he says, I'm putting enmity between you and the woman and your offspring and her, his offspring. So there's gonna be enmity, there's conflict, there's strife. But at the same time, he promised that one would come who would crush the serpent and would reestablish the peace and the harmony that was broken when man ate from the forbidden fruit. And God, in the course of time, as that revelation would unfold, who is that one who's going to crush the serpent? He's called, in Isaiah, the Prince of Peace. And he would be the one to execute a covenant of peace. Isaiah 54 speaks of a covenant of peace. So right after that wonderful picture of the suffering servant, we heard it in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who would make peace by his wounds. The, the, we're told in Isaiah 54, the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Compassion on his enemies. And when the son came, when God's dear son came into the world, his arrival was celebrated by a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. And we know, beloved, do we not, that he secured that peace for us by his own blood of that son who came down from heaven, we're told in Colossians 1, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Have you come to know that peace? 
We were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and he has now reconciled us in his body, by, uh, in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him if only we would continue in the faith. If you're, if you're here this morning with us and you have not repented of your sin and come to Jesus in faith, I would urge you to do that today. Do you not see the chaos, the disruption in our world? That is a result of our enmity against God. And if you're here this morning, indifferent to God, apathetic towards God, hostile to God, God is coming to you right now with terms of peace. He says, I laid down my life that all who would repent, all who would turn from that arrogant pride of living for themselves, who would turn from it and throw themselves upon that grace found in Jesus, the Prince of Peace, that all could be cleansed and washed and forgiven and reconciled and brought into his family. And if you have not come to Jesus, I urge you to do so today. Believe upon the Lord Jesus. Beloved, I know most of you have. He has become our peace. He came and he preached peace to those who were far off. He came and preached peace to those who were near. He tore down the dividing wall of hostility that separated Jew and Gentile that he might create in himself one new man, one new people, a united body in in the place of the two, so making peace might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, and it was his absolute joy to do that. Of that everlasting covenant, that covenant of peace that Isaiah speaks of, Jeremiah, when God makes that promise of that everlasting covenant in Jeremiah, he says, I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with them. I'm not going to turn away from doing them good. I'm going to put the fear of me in their hearts. And he says, I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart and with all my soul. Those who plan peace have joy, and it is the joy of God in making peace with his enemies. Can you imagine what it is for God, the creator of the... Did you see those pictures from that telescope this week? The God who made all... The God who just flung that all into existence with his word, that God saying, I rejoice to do you sinners good. I rejoice with all my heart and all my soul. How much joy must that be? That's the joy of making peace. Those who plan peace have joy. It's a big joy our God has. He's the God of peace. His kingdom is one of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And now he calls us as his ambassadors to be instruments of that peace, to testify to the reconciling power that he has by the peace that we would know and cultivate and share in together. Our peace with each other is the fruit of his cross becoming real in our hearts as we demote the king of self and as we live for a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ, the prince of peace. And so when we come to know the Lord Jesus, when we come to be at peace with him, it brings a sweet and refreshing and honorable joy to us, the joy of planning and promoting and pursuing peace with each other. So now we, we live by Proverbs 10, 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Gracious words 
are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. We, we're the people who speak gracious words. We're the people who speak life. We're the people who cover all offenses. We have ears that listen to life-giving reproof. There's a category. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof, Proverbs 15, 31, will dwell among the wise. Do you know that? Do you know that? Life-giving rebuke. Not stifling rebuke, not rebuke that's coming because the person just really wants to show you you're wrong and I'm right, but life-giving rebuke because we're so absorbed, we're so fascinated by the, the, the peace that we have with God, we just long for you to walk in the fullness of that joy and peace. And so not because I have something against you, but because I'm for you and I see something that is maybe leading you away from that peace, I want to call you back to that way of joy. Life-giving rebuke. Our mouths are like a fountain of life. We speak like a honeycomb. And thus we know that blessedness that Jesus spoke of. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. We receive this. We receive this peace. We receive this love. We receive this fellowship. And then we're just reflections of our dad. And we begin to show that peace and that love. And it's a battle. It's a struggle. We have weeks where we see the ugliness of it. And what do we do? We just pick ourselves up and we go right back to the cross. And we remember the foundation of our peace. And we, we step into pursuing that joy of being a blessed peacemaker. That's the fruit of his covenant of peace. I mean, I could keep going. Aren't you, aren't you glad? I know I have to end, but aren't you glad that that Jesus is not a babbling, quarrelsome gossip. Like he, you know, understand, he has ample uh, knowledge to be able. Like in the, aren't you glad that the fellowship of the Trinity is not just like, <sighs> like there'd be, because there could have been some fellowship in the Trinity this week, like he's gonna get up He's going to get up and preach about peace. And that's not how our God is. He's not ashamed. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, it says. He knows us down to the core. I've, it's been an ugly week. I don't know half of the ugliness that he has seen. And he's not ashamed to call us brothers. And we get to show that to each other. We get to share that with each other. So I said to this guy, you were wondering if I was going to come back there? So he said, why were you meeting outside for so long? And it's like, oh, okay, I want to toast. I didn't have time to prep that. I had lots of, week, lots of hours to prep this. I, I said, well, I said, I, I wouldn't really categorize it as the government forced us and bullied us and told us what to do, and we just... Submitted. I said, you know, the Bible does talk about submitting to authorities, so that's a category there. But I said, really beyond that, I said, our church is just a microcosm of the larger society because you had some people, they didn't really care that much about the virus. They didn't think it was a big deal. They just thought we should carry on with life. And then there was other people very concerned about it. And, and some because of their physical vulnerability and others just maybe because of their news. That we, just had, we were all over the place with it, just the way everyone in our culture was. And, but what we decided was it was very important for us to be together. Because we're the family of God. We love each other. 
And so we were not, I said this, I said, we were not going to have indoor church for the people that want indoor church, outdoor church for the people that want outdoor church. I said, we weren't going to do that because that's dividing apart. That's tearing apart the unity that God has made us as his family. I said, we just hung out together. And, it was, and I know not all of you agree with that. That's fine. We can not agree about some things and still agree in the Lord. And that's what we did for 15 months, right? And so in just that little small way, we get to experience a peace that is meant to testify. Maybe he doesn't know any peace like that because all he sees is arguing on social media and everybody in their own echo chamber talking about what they think and listening to people. And we have to kind of just work through it all. And it was a little messy. It was a little hard. But we, we did it, and we honored the God of peace, I believe, as we did that. And there's a lot of threats still. So that was a threat. I think our church has been largely united through it. But there's lots and lots of threats, beloved. Threats about politics and threats about racism and, and all kinds of preferences. It's amazing that we, how we can quarrel about the ministry and work of the church. We can quarrel about worship styles and preferences and how to best do missions and how to best do local outreach, how to best do evangelism, how we should give ourselves to prayer. We can quarrel about the work of the Lord. Gossip, quarreling, deceit, greed, there's lots of threats. And yet we have, we have our elder brother, Jesus, the Prince of Peace. He doesn't quarrel. He doesn't quarrel. Isaiah 42 is a wonderful picture. He doesn't quarrel, cry aloud. He won't break a bruised reed. He won't quench a faintly burning wick. We've got our elder brother, Jesus. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. We've got our heavenly father. We've got the Holy Spirit, the spirit of peace to do with us and through us more than we could ask or imagine. So as we look to the God of peace, may we know more and more what it means for his glory and by his grace to know that goodness and pleasantness of dwelling together in unity. Love you, brothers and sisters. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for peace. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We can't even really keep it. We can't even keep it going without your spirit working among us. And so, Father, we do pray that you would help us to be humble, that you would help us to be people who daily receive and experience the renewal of that peace with you, that unchanging peace, that peace that surpasses understanding. Grant us to walk in sweet fellowship with you, and may you increase the sweetness of our fellowship together. Grant us to be one. Even as we look towards that day, that, that day of new creation that we're going to sing of when that unity is perfect. We long for that day, Father. We long for a day when there would be no discord, when all would be united in a wonderful, melodious choir, when we are with one heart, with one soul, perfectly in glory. Until that day, Father, may we be repenting of our pride and of our quarreling and of our gossiping, of our envy, of our greed. May we be a repenting people and one who are eager to extend love and forgiveness to each other because we've known that great peace with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.